0: All right, I think we're good. Yeah. All right. Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. We're going to continue our look at Advent. And I think this week I'm covering joy. What do you mean, I think? I'm definitely coming covering joy. I want to start with like a story. Have you ever really, like really wanted a specific present for Christmas? I can recall that I must have been like seven or eight years old or so. And I remember... Like being this little boy, and I really wanted a bow and arrow. That's what I wanted. And I can remember like holding a box on Christmas. It was long. It was wide, and it wasn't very deep. And I can remember thinking to myself, this is it. This is the bow and arrow. A bow and arrow would fit perfectly in this. I can imagine the curve in there, the arrows in there. I tear open this packaging, and... It was a sweater from my Aunt Jackie. Then a a few presents later, she had also got me a bow and arrow. And so it was all like, I'm oh, good, right? But I can remember like this feeling of like almost like Oh my goodness, I have to say thank you. It was even as like a little boy, I had manners. And I was like, I have to say thank you to my Aunt Jackie for getting me a sweater when what I really wanted. Was this bow and arrow, and she has just seen how excited I tore into this sweater. But you know, she did give me the bow and arrow. It was really cool. I really liked it. It, it had like the rubber tips, like you know the ones that have like the suction cups on them. So then I would stick them. Up. I think I spent like most of Christmas Day. Like later on, my family puts on football, whatever. I think I spent most of Christmas Day sticking darts to like John Elway's helmet with my new bow. I used that bow to hunt like all sorts of stuffed animals, things on TV, my brother, the dog. Everything was fair game for this bow and arrow. It was great. But then something happened that I know has never happened to any of you. I went back to school. Fourth grade couldn't wait. I loved that bow for about two weeks. And then I almost never played with it again. It became just like another one of my toys, right? Just kind of sat there in the box and kind of came out when we played Cops and Robbers or whatever. I know that none of you have ever gotten fixated on a new phone or an air fryer or a fancy new vacuum cleaner. I definitely know that you're not like me in that way. And once you got your new air fryer, you definitely use it all the time, right? And your Instant Pot, it definitely doesn't have any dust on it. You, being better than me, have not moved on to the next thing two weeks after getting the one thing you really wanted. That definitely didn't happen to you because you're a better person than I am. And it's easy to think, like when you're in that moment, when you're, when you're on Amazon and you're scrolling through and you're going, ooh. My co-worker's got an air fryer. Here's a nice air fryer. Six quarts. It's got two baskets. If only I had that thing, then, then I'd I'd make it. I'd have it. Then I would be happy. It's almost like this. It, it, we don't, we're not that honest with ourselves. We're not that honest. Or I'm not that that honest with myself to be able to say, like, oh, here's what I'm feeling right now. Right now I'm feeling that if I had this six quart double basket air fryer then i would be happy like that's not what's going on in my head but subconsciously that's kind of like the message that i'm telling myself right like if i had this then i'd be happy and we have that feeling until we have that thing and we realize that it was never going to fulfill us anyways i want us to turn now to the book of isaiah and the book of Isaiah, it's interesting. It was written over the course of probably about 100 years in three different iterations. Like you can almost break up the book of Isaiah into three different chunks. The first 39 chapters were written before the exile, um, before the Israelite people were carried away out of Israel. Then chapters 40 through 56, they were written during the exile. Uh, when these people are like living in Babylon and living in other Places and they're dispersed and whatever, and then the final chapters from 56 onward were written about, you know, after the return from exile. I want us to turn now to Isaiah chapter nine. Let's see if I can pull this up. Here it is, Isaiah nine. Our verses today is going to be verses two and three. Let's see if I can scroll down on this just a little bit so you can get all of it. Yeah, there it is. So here's what it says, Isaiah nine two and three. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. What a great word. So today, we have to talk about joy. We've got to talk about what is the origin of joy. Where do we get this joy? And how do we... And how have we like misunderstood joy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for just coming and joining us. Lord, would my word somehow be used to teach your people on what joy is? I just want to thank you, Lord. Amen. So what we've seen is that like joy is not found in material things because they fade. And our joy in them fades pretty quickly. So And then what I want to say is that joy is not found in ourselves either. I mean, we're regularly told it's not found. Yeah, it's not found outside of ourselves. We're regularly told in Scripture to rejoice always. Uh, That's 1 Thessalonians. We rejoice in persecution. That's James. We rejoice in suffering. That's Colossians. And so the root of our joy is not external. All right. It's not externally like we don't have this joy that comes from outside of ourselves. And so then it's easy to think, okay, well, that means that joy must originate inside of me, Then it has to come from within. And it's a choice that I get to make or something. Right. That's where joy is. I make this choice to have joy. Let's talk about that for a second. Because the fruit of the spirit, it lists joy among its fruits. It's something that should be found in every Christian's life. And Paul says, Galatians 5.25, see if I can pull that up here. Boom, there it is. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another. He's also listed a bunch of like the fruits of the Spirit just before this, right? But he's saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit, right? We. The question I want to ask us is, can we choose to live by the Spirit, Can we choose to live by the Spirit? And what I want to say is no. Like through church history, it's always been affirmed that people can't choose to live by the Spirit any more than we can choose to live sinless lives. It's impossible to make that choice without God's grace. And so then what we have to see is that joy is not found internally either. We can't choose joy inside of us. Because of our own sin, it's not there. So joy is not found externally, since we are to rejoice in persecution and suffering, and the things that we buy, they fade after a while. And joy is not found as a choice either. It's not found internally. Since we can't make since we can't have it without the spirit, then where is the root of joy? Where's the root of joy then? Some of you already know this and you understand it well. The root of joy is God himself. There's a transcendent quality to God. We might say if it's not external, well, then it's internal. And we create these false binaries. We go, okay, if it's not outside of us, it must be inside of us. But God, though, he transcends our thinking between outside of us, inside of us. And he goes, no, it's above us. It's something that I bring to you He transcends our thinking, and he brings joy as a part of who he is and what he's accomplished. In Genesis, God looks at all that he has created, and he declared it good. We can flip over to Psalms 104, verse 31. It says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So joy is found in God alone. And joy characterizes the bookends of our Bible. Right. It ends with, well, let's let's joy character is characterizes the bookends of our Bible. It begins with God's delight at his creation. It ends with his joyful vision of redeemed people with their God. And between these bookends is a story of joy shattered at human sinfulness and joy restored at great cost through the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. And the question is, where do we get this joy? See, the joy of God is shared with us. Let me flip over to John 15, 15. It says, or sorry, John 15, 11. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. The joy we have is given to us by God. And the joy of God came to focus in human history in Jesus Christ. I want to say something like, every painting that I see of Jesus, he always has the same face. He's always and it doesn't matter what he's doing. He's standing at the door knocking. He's got a serious face. He's speaking with the woman at the well. Serious face Jesus. And I think the, the Jesus of our artwork is, is way too serious. See, there's a quote by G.K. Chesterton. And if you haven't read anything by Chesterton, his book Orthodoxy, it's more than 100 years old at this point. It's on my must-read for all mature Christians. Here's what he says. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says about seriousness. He says, Seriousness is not a virtue. It would be a heresy, but much more sensible heresy, to say that seriousness is a vice. It is really a natural trend or lapse into taking oneself gravely because it is the easiest thing to do. For solemnity flows out of men naturally. But laughter is a leap. It's easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Satan fell by the force of gravity. That's Chesterton. That's what Chesterton says. That seriousness is not a virtue. He says it's closer to a vice. I think that far too often, I agree with him. I think far too often we treat ourselves too seriously. Has the Lord shared his joy with you? Do you have the fruit of the spirit? Then where is your joy? Where are the smiling paintings of Jesus? Horatius Boner, uh, a Scottish hymn writer. Here's what he says. He says, our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in him. Right? Did you catch that? That our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in him. The first encounter that somebody will have of Christ will be your emotions. Here, imagine this. Imagine that like a sad, a mopey, dejected person, a real Eeyore, came knocking at your door. And he says, I need to tell you about Jesus. Can I talk to you about Jesus and what he can do for your life? What kind of response are you gonna give that person? And I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, what for? Can I, can you, can I talk to you about Jesus? What for? So that I can be sad and mopey too? No, no. The first, our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in Him. Think about this in terms of Jesus' life on Earth. So Jesus, he was an itinerant rabbi. He had no house to lay his head. He often slept in the wilderness. He had no income except what his band of ragamuffins could scrounge together. He had no wife. And I'm not sure that any respectable lady would have him. You've heard the rumors about him being a drunk and a glutton. But what he lacked in home, in income, and wife, he made up for though in enemies. He had tons of enemies. I don't think that works. Um, It seems nearly every respectable person in town disliked Jesus. And yet this, this Jesus, unemployed, homeless, enemy of the state, has the audacity to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. What a strange thing for somebody to say. Here's what Kierkegaard Kierkegaard is a pretty famous philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. He says that these are the words of the lowly and helpless one who would seem to have least to offer, being at the same time the high and mighty one who crazily claims to have most to offer. See, Jesus' call for us to come to him that we might find rest is absurd, it's like an email from a Nigerian prince who claims to have a fortune locked away in an offshore account, but he needs $500 from a, from me so that they can access it. And for my trouble, for going through the trouble of wiring him $500, bucks, he'll send me the sum of $24 million. See, the offer of Jesus, come, find rest, find your joy with me, it sounds absurd. It sounds like the offer of a Nigerian prince. And yet, Jesus is the high and mighty one who chooses to live amongst the beggars. His offer of rest is real to all. His offer of abundance is real, and it is joy. It is the real, the true Nigerian prince story that's available for all. Frederick Beekner he says that God... God is the cosmic shepherd who gets more of a kick out of that one lost sheep once he finds it again than out of the 90 and 9 who had the good sense not to get lost in the first place. And it seems to me that we miss joy because we misunderstand God. We tend to think of joy as either a choice to be made in here as though I have the power to choose. Or we think of joy as a set of external circumstances, as though I'll be happy once I get this or that or the other. And we miss joy because we misunderstand it as a transcendent gift from God, as a part of his character, as part of who he is. We are unprepared to receive joy because we're ill-prepared to receive God. This is why the church celebrates Advent, has always celebrated Advent. It's a time of preparation. The word advent means arrival. It means the arrival of the important person, thing, or event. See, we celebrate the advent arrival over the course of weeks. Jesus arrived in one night. So why do we devote weeks towards it? It's because in our hearts, we must prepare for his arrival. That's why the church has historically set aside this time. We are preparing for the arrival of God. And there's a duality. There's two reasons Why we, of what we're preparing for. See, we look back, we look back at the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, God made flesh. We look back at the advent, the most important advent, the most important arrival of anybody, of Jesus in the flesh, born as a baby. And by considering his arrival into his world, our stories are shaped by his story. And there's a duality, though, that that's not the only thing we're preparing for. We're not preparing just to look backwards. We are preparing for his arrival, not as a baby, but as forward, but looking forward to his arrival as a king. What kind of God are you prepared for? What kind of king are you prepared for? See, people are prepared for everything except for the fact that beyond the darkness of their blindness, there's a great light. They're prepared to go on breaking their backs, plowing the same old field without seeing until they stub their toes on it that there's a treasure buried in that field rich enough to buy Texas. They're prepared for a God who strikes hard bargains, but not for a God who gives as much for an hour's work as for a day's. They're prepared for a mustard seed kingdom of God no bigger than the eye of a newt But not for the great banyan tree it becomes with birds in its branches singing Mozart. They are prepared for the potluck lunch at Riverside Friends Church, but not for the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, the arrival of Jesus into this world was unexpected by most. He was visited by foreigners and lowly shepherds. And if Jesus was born today In America, I imagine that he would be visited by migrant workers and fast food burger flippers are the only ones who would see it. His arrival was unexpected by everybody, and most people missed it. And we do the same today. Did you hear about the two peanuts who were walking down the road? One was assaulted. It's just a strange joke. The gospel itself is unexpected. It's unexpected, but like the punchline to a great joke, it evokes in us a joy that is spontaneous and uncontrollable. Luke one forty four, it's like John the Baptist from within the womb of Elizabeth jumped for joy at the sound of Mary's greeting. The Lord has come near, and John jumped for joy. His response to the Lord Jesus coming near him was spontaneous, uncontrollable worship. Even though we may be ill-prepared to receive him, because people always are, God knocks at the door before we're ready to answer it. That's part of faith. If God waited till we were ready, he would never knock and we would never answer. But part of the process of being ready to receive God is answering the knock while we are still unprepared. See, joy is not up to us. I cannot manifest it in myself or others. It's not based on my choices or on my ability to influence my external circumstances. Joy, though, is like a good punchline. It's delivered to us by God as he enters our lives unexpectedly. The joy of the Lord evokes in us a spontaneous and uncontrollable evocation. And I want to leave you with this question and with this challenge. When was the last time that you encountered God like the unexpected punchline of a good joke, pleasant and delightful? The challenge that I would leave you with is this. Take a few moments and consider that. Consider when was the last time that you experienced God when you encountered him in this unexpected and unique way and it brought you joy and the joy of the Lord just washed over you so that's where joy comes from let's pray heavenly father very thankful that you bring us joy when we're unable to bring it about ourselves lord would you just help us to experience it time and time again to know and enter into your joy. Would you just call us, call us into that unexpected joy that you have. We just ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.